Men, men are weak, scattered, divided, leaderless. Well, Elrond, men aren't all bad. Don't forget they have a secret weapon. It's question time. Back to Quenya questions in quarantine. Raleigh, do I have you over there? Right here, Sam. How are you doing today? Doing as well as I can. Thanks. For our listeners, quick shout out before today's episode. If we sound a little bit different, it's because we have now taken a step forward in our podcast technology. We've been really touched by the support we've gotten. And so we thought we would reward you with actually getting to hear us a little more clearly. So we've bought some new microphones and recording technology, and we hope that it brings our Silmarillion quest to your homes during our quarantine period more clearly than in the past. Yeah, it's like we were touched by the valor here, and now... We're seeing improvements in our microphones. Quickly to recap last episode before we go into the new one. Last time we had of the sun and moon and hiding of Valinor. And we learned that the sun and moon in the world of Middle-earth and Valinor and the Tolkien universe comes from the fruit and flower of these two trees of Valinor, which once brought light to the world but have been destroyed by Morgoth, the evil one, along with Ungoliant, the spider-like demon. The Valar, or gods, take the fruit and flower of the dying trees and send them up into the sky as more or less a big middle finger to Morgoth to show him over in Middle-earth, hey, you may have destroyed our trees, but look what we're going to send your way out of their ruin. And so the elves who are just returning to Middle-earth from Valinor can take hope at the sun and moon, and it sends Morgoth and his evil cohort scurrying back below the earth, and they're afraid of the sun. On the flip side, once the Valar do send up the sun and moon into the sky, they take a bit of a backseat to the story. They say, hey elves, I know you're going to war against Morgoth. We're going to send you the sun and moon, but then we're going to basically hang out in Valinor for a while. Good luck in your battles against the great evil one. Enjoy the sun and moon, and we're going to be just over here for now. So a bit of a pros and cons. The elves get the sun and moon, but they don't get the direct intervention of the Valar. That's last time. Today we have a new chapter, and I'll let Raleigh kick it off with the Raleigh recap. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So now that the sun and moon are amongst us in Middle-earth, we have the ending of the sleep of Yavanna, and with them comes the awakening of the men, the second child of Iluvatar. So as Sam mentioned, the Valar are huddled down in Valinor at this time, but life is breathing into Middle-earth, and the second spring of Arda commences. And so during the second spring, we have the men awakening. However, there are no valor to guide them, unlike with the elves. And so the men will fear the valor rather than love them. Yeah, the men awake when the sun rises for the first time in the sky, and it's that big circle of life moment where all new life springs up in Middle-earth the men, much like the elves did, awake far in the east, 
and have to figure out what the heck is going on with this world. At least they get the sun to guide them, a little different than the elves who were in starlight the whole time when they were a young race. Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, although they don't have guides from the Valor, the men do meet the Dark Elves, and they become friends with them. So these are your elves that did not go to Valinor. And basically, to end this uh, chapter, we start hearing about some characters who will play a big part, presumably, in the uh, the next few chapters and maybe the rest of our uh, first age of Middle-earth. We first hear a baron, son of Beria here, and he's a man who has touched a Silmaril. So, sounds pretty important, if you ask me. So, presumably, he will run into Morgoth. Not sure about that one, but we'll see what happens with him. Then we are also introduced to Arindil, who Sam has mentioned in the past. His wife, Elwing. And perhaps the most famous elf in all of Middle-earth um, to us Lord of the Rings fans, and that is Elrond, his son. Yeah, that's exciting. So we get a bit of a sneak peek here in the men chapter. We get Baron, who will probably be the most important man in the whole Silmarillion story. And while Baron isn't alive yet in the Silmarillion timetable and hasn't touched the Silmaril yet, the Tolkien's give us this sneak peek. The men are here. They're going to be cool. One of them, at least, is going to get to do something important with the Silmarils, our MacGuffin that's driving the story forward. And then we get Arendel and Elwing and Elrond, their child. We had Galadriel a while ago, but now we have Elrond as well. So the rulers of Lothlorien and Rivendell have hit the page, even if they haven't actually hit the streets of Middle-earth in this age, so something to stay tuned for. We also get this nice reference to the union between elves and men, and that involves Arendil and Elwing and Elrond. So this is the times when the, the men and elves have relationships. And we talked in the Thingol and Melian chapter that only one time ever does a god, one of these Maiar spirits, Melian, have a relationship with an elf, Thingol. That's the only time that's going to happen. Right, right. In terms of elves and men getting together, it turns out that that is only going to happen three times in all of the Lord of the Rings story. And involved Arendil and Elwing and Elrond. Of course, one of those relationships between elves and men is the one that's in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn and Arwen, Elrond's daughter. So another flag to be looking for is when the elves and men have a relationship. And we don't get them here yet, but it is the first time we see not only the men wake up, but the men finding the dark elves, right? Finding the elves who never left to go to Valinor and learning from the elves, forming that community and trying to make their way through the world for the first time. Lots of hints of interesting things to come. Yeah, just setting the stage for what's about to become an action-packed series, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. So today, really, I thought since we now finally have the men the younger children of Iluvatar, and we have the elves, we could talk about for Tolkien and the Silmarillion the key differences between those two kinds of beings. Because they're not just physically different, but they really, their attitude and the way they approach life is quite different between the elves and men. 
So the first thing is the different relationship that the elves have to the gods versus the relationship that the men have to the gods, the Valar. And you hinted at that a little bit in your Raleigh recap with the men not having anybody to guide them over to Valinor. So how did you see that relationship in terms of like, what do men think about the gods and how is that different than what the elves think? Well, to me, it seems like the elves see them as leaders or at least beings that they want to emulate. Whereas to the men, then I guess they're just like the, uh, the non-existent giant, maybe. You hear stories in like the Middle Ages when they think that all these Roman ruins were made by giants and they're just so disconnected from it because they have no idea how they would have made those types of things. And that's kind of how I see the men valor situation. The men have no ties to them whatsoever. So they respect them and they want to be like them, but they have no real reason to ever want to see them in the same light as the elves since they were absent from them it's like the men don't get to actually meet the valar face to face the way the elves did right the elves woke up and then arame the hunter the valar rides up to them and says hey we're the valar do you want to come hang out with us in valinor and he gives them a sneak peek and then a bunch of the elves go to valinor and they get to meet yavana they get to meet manway they get to meet varda Valar to the elves are leaders and important figures, but they know them. The men don't get that same intimate knowledge of the gods. And that leads to that exact phenomenon you described. They are confused by the gods. They're not quite sure what to make of them. In fact, it says in this chapter that men have feared rather than loved them and have not understood the purpose of the powers being at variance with them and at strife with the world. I think it's Tolkien trying to set up how men view gods today. Like, we can believe they exist, but we don't get to meet them face to face. It also says that, so while the Valar have, like we said, taken a back seat to the world, they're just going to be in Valinor for a time and not come hang out in Middle-earth, Ulmo, who is our... Valar COO of the Arda Corporation, who's the water guy, he comes and tries to talk to the men. And it says that the men just aren't able to figure out what he's saying. They feel like they're getting some sort of message from some kind of divine power, but they can't even figure out what he's trying to tell them. So quite a different experience of the relationship with these Valar than the elves have. It's like the elves have gotten to meet the people in charge of the world corporation. The men are living in that world and not even knowing why. I think the second thing we should do to keep the difference between elves and men straight is to think about their physical and mental differences. You know, what Mm -hmm. do the firstborn and secondborn children, how are they different? And it's not just like the elves have pointy ears and are blonde, like (laughs) in the movie, but how do we get that feeling in the Silmarillion about these more down-to-earth differences in the two races? Well, on a surface level, the men are just generally more frail and more easily slain by weapons, whereas the elves are mortal and very wise and are immune to any sickness or pestilence. But because the men are able to be slain by weapons and mischance, 
and are less easily healed and subject to sickness and ills, uh, they can grow old and they can die. That's, I guess, is the key difference between the two is the immortality of the elves and the mortality of the men. And this was something that I honestly had never thought about in The Lord of the Rings. But they mentioned that the men, when they die, it's unknown what happens to them and whether they go to the halls of Mandos. So do all elves go to these halls? Is it like a, a, a Viking type thing where you go to Valhalla and drink with the gods? Yeah, I think that's a really great thing to touch on here, Raleigh, that we haven't mentioned before on this show. So I think people who have seen the Lord of the Rings movies, read the books, we understand a fundamental difference between the elves and men, right? The men die like men do today. And some men, like Aragorn, get to live longer than others, but everybody's going to die. And it's important to think about, first, well, the elves live forever, but what happens when like, they get stabbed or they die from sorrow, which does happen? And what happens is a sort of Valhalla situation a little bit when they die. So say an elf is killed in a battle with an orc. The elf's body dies because the body is the physical stuff of the earth, but its spirit goes back to Valinor and goes to the halls of Mandos. And remember, Mandos is our long-term forecaster god who doesn't come out of his office very often, but he knows the past, present, and future, and he pronounces doom on the Noldor when they exile themselves from Valinor. He's the one who told Feanor that he was doomed, or whatever the exact words were. Exactly. So... The spirits of the dead elves go to the halls of Mandos, which is in Valinor, and there they live for a long time. We don't get a lot of detail about what that means, but they dwell in Valinor in this special area where the dead elves go, which is with Mandos, this long-term seer who knows the past, present, and future. And it says that either they stay there forever in the halls of Mandos, or it says they can at times return so presumably, if you're a dead elf spirit, you could be reincarnated and come back as a elf again. And this happens at least one time with the character of Glorfindel, who's in the Lord of the Rings series. But basically, the elves never leave Arda. They can be killed, and then they go to the Halls of Waiting, the Halls of Mandos, where they hang out, or they can come back sometime. So it's even an immortality that extends beyond not just not aging, but actually they cannot die or move on at any point. That's the elf situation. And my favorite thing about how Tolkien has laid out the difference between the elves and men is that initially we might think, well, it sounds pretty nice to be an elf, right? Like they can't get sick. They live forever, they're more skilled and wiser, and they pick up experiences over thousands of years that they can use. It sounds like they've really got it all going on. Like, if you could be a man or elf, hook me up for the firstborn of Iluvatar, right? But what Tolkien has done is that he has given men in his story lots of weaknesses, but also a secret weapon. 
and that weapon involves their ability to die. So I wanted to quickly touch on a key passage today that's not from our Of Men chapter, but actually goes back to the very beginning of the Silmarillion, of the beginning of days, where Iluvatar is describing how he is going to create the elves and the men. Okay, sounds good. And for this section, I'm going to replace the word quendi, which means elves, and atani, which means men, with just the words elves and men, so that's a little more straightforward. For an age, Iluvatar sat alone in thought. Then he spoke and said, Behold, I love the earth, which shall be the mansion for the elves and the men. But the elves shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures, and they shall have and shall conceive and bring forth more beauty than all my children, and they shall have the greater bliss in this world. So, so far, elves, pretty great. But then he says, But to the men I will give a new gift. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is the fate of all things else. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive, and are not bound to it, and depart soon whither the elves know not. Death is their fate, the gift of Iluvatar, which even the powers shall envy. But Melkor has cast his shadow upon it and confounded it with darkness and brought evil out of good and fear out of hope. So in the Tolkien universe, the ability for men to die is not a sad or unfortunate thing, but really is the power that the elves don't have. And actually, even the Valar don't have. The Valar are bound to the world as well. And only the men get to eventually leave the world and go somewhere else. And it's not quite clear where. It's kind of a cool idea. You know, normally, when you think of immortality, that's the ultimate gift. And yet this is turned on its head completely. So that all these elves and Valar included, are almost longing to be men. They wish that they were men. Maybe it's a grass is always greener type thing because I'm sure the men wish that they were elves, but it's not seen as in the traditional sense where death is not a gift. Death is the end. So I think it's a cool, different way of looking at it. As a lot of things that we've talked about in past episodes where the Tolkien universe seems to take the traditional idea and throw it on its head. And I think we see that envy from the elves towards the men in the lord of the rings somewhat the elves are just sad a lot of the time right like sometimes they're having feasts and being happy but galadriel elrond they seem to be pretty sad characters a lot of their thoughts are about the good times that are past the fading of their race just the slow decay of time and you can feel that they may live forever, but their sorrow increases. And eventually they seem to envy this freedom that the men have to one day lay down their burden and move on. I also like that death is part of the gift of the Luvatar, but it's not the whole thing. The whole gift could be something more like freedom. It says that men 
should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein, and they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world. Iluvatar gives the men the ability to take the world as they find it and shape it to be a better place. It may be 20 generations of men being born and dying and born and dying, but that they will continuously strive for improvement for their children, for themselves, and for the world. Right, right. So the elves are going to be stuck into what their life was like at the beginning of the first age, whereas the men are always going to be progressing. Maybe not always good. You know, they might take some steps backwards, but... Over time, they will be progressing. So you see that in our world as well, where societies will progress over time as new ideas are brought just from new generations of people. And you're not stuck in the same ideas that happened 8,000 years ago in case of the elves, where at the beginning of their first age, they're still presumably doing the same things as they are when the Shire is booming in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's that changeability or adaptability of men that Iluvatar gives them. That's their secret weapon, even given a million handicaps compared to the elves. And also, once we get to those times where there's the union of the elves and men, where we can try and see all of those good traits play out together. I'll also say, just because, as we said, we got our new technology this week, Raleigh, that perhaps we are underlining this ability of the men to never be satisfied and to move (laughs) for improvement. So we'll credit Tolkien uh, for that a little bit, I think. This one's for J.R.R. right here. Well said. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on, Raleigh? Um, So this is sort of a random question, but we brought him up for the first time in a while. What is Iluvatar doing during this whole time? Is he excited to see the men awake since they were his second children? Or is he fearful of Melkor? You know, we don't get a great idea of what Iluvatar thinks after the world is made. Unlike the Valar who go and actually live in the world, Iluvatar stays out in the void with the other Ainur. Remember, there are some of these spirits that were all singing in the jam band at the beginning who decided not to go live in the world and become the Valar. So Luvatar's presumably still hanging out with them. The last we actually saw him do something was when he got really mad at Aule, our foreman, for creating the dwarves before the men and elves woke up. Oh, right. And since then, he's very hands-off. I mean, presumably he decided when the elves were going to wake up when the men were going to wake up, but he's pretty hands-off. He's probably happy that the elves and men are awake now because that was like his big jam. That's why the Valar formed the Arda Corporation is because Iluvatar wanted them to make the world a good place for elves and men to live in. So now he's got his firstborn, he's got his secondborn. Maybe it's time for him to be a bit of an empty nester and just kind of watch his first and second children do their thing. So now that we have the men awaking in the east and slowly moving west, much like the elves did, and then we have the elves doing the opposite, the Noldor are now coming back east across the sea and are coming in from the west side into Middle-earth. 
the thrust of our story is now going to shift back and be centered in Middle Earth again. And we already have little hints of relationships between the elves and men. So now we really get into the heart of our Silmarillion story, which will take place in Middle Earth and follow the struggles of elves and men against Morgoth, the black foe of the world. Next episode, we really get into what that's going to look like. The next chapter is called Of the Return of the Noldor. So we've left Feanor and his sons and their really angry Silmaril-hungry posse on the shores of Middle-earth again for a couple chapters, and we're going to return to them. And we're going to find that the Noldor are back, and they are ready for war. So stay tuned for that next time on Quenya Questions in Quarantine.